Keys go to 11. Once again, I'm Nathan Bell. Greg Dutcher sitting across from me. Greg, what's going on, man? Dude, NFL Week 1 in the books. Yeah. Ravens yeah. won. Ugly win <laughs> against the Buffalo Bills. I mean, ugly. But they won. And more importantly, Nathan, for you. Yeah. Your, your neck of the woods. Dude, what is it about the New England Patriots? <laughs> they don't have Tom Brady. Gronkowski is out. You know, who, who's on my fantasy time? Right, uh, right. Uh, fantasy team, of course, week one. And uh, here, here it is. You know, I'm watching last night thinking, there's no way they're going to Arizona. Right, right. They are going to get – they stink and win <laughs> because of Bill Belichick's evil empire. Wait, that might be overstating. Wait, let me rethink. It's not overstating it. Um, so, and you're not even a fan. I know. But you get the joy of saying, hey, my neck of the woods was well represented. That's right. <laughs> that, that's got to be more annoying for you than anything yeah. else. <laughs> yeah, that is the worst. You're not even invested, and you can still say, oh, yeah, that's my team. If I have to identify the team, it's the team that always wins. That's right. <laughs> oh, dude. But it was, hey, I loved it, man. Lisa said, I know week one is special to you. So last night, you know, I was watching the game and uh, kind of half falling asleep on right. the couch and, and all that stuff. But it was, uh, it was, uh, it was a lot of fun. And uh, I played um, my fantasy partner. It actually ties into our guest today. We'll get to in a moment. Uh-huh. I played my buddy, Justin. Yeah. And I scored low. But he scored lower. Nice. So out of our twelve guys in the league, we were like in the bottom four. Yep. And I still won. But Justin's brother uh, was the one who connected us to our guest. But we'll yeah. get there in a second. We'll get there in just a second. Um, but first, we have a quick announcement from our sponsor, um, Mission Aware. Go ahead. Mission Aware, man. We've talked about these guys a lot. We're so thrilled to partner with them. Uh, Missionaware.com. Uh, uh, you know, posters. Um, uh, t-shirts, mugs, beer steins, whatever you want. Uh, featured, I noticed on their website this morning, this is kind of a popular one, but I love this one for insecure guys like me that are bald on top but grow a lot of unruly facial hair. <laughs> uh, the Spurgeon quote, you, you get the Spurgeon smiling beard on a t-shirt yes. where he once said, growing a beard is a habit most natural, scriptural, manly, and beneficial. <laughs> Nathan, you got to grow that beard back. I here. know, right? you got to get full shag. We're, we're getting into that time of the year. For the fall. But yes, if you uh, go to missionaware.com, you enter our special promo code on any of their items. Uh, enter the, the word sustain. Mm-hmm. Little of these go to 11 uh, link there. Sustain for 11. These go to 11% off. That's right. Um, great stuff. And we uh, do want to get right to our guest. Um, real quick, though, just to let everyone know, we are going to be doing some updates on our logo this coming week. Yep. So as you go to our Facebook, our website, uh, don't be alarmed. You know, it's still us. We're just changing some things, um, getting a nice, fresh update on it. We really liked uh, the designs uh, that are coming out. And we're going to talk more about the guy who is doing the designs for us uh, next week. Great. So pumped. Um, now to get on to our guest, super excited about this because um, Justin's brother Bryant is the one who got us in contact with this gentleman, Miles Van Pelt. Miles, how are you today? Great, thank you. Uh, Miles, if you could uh, just tell our audience a little bit about yourself so they can get to know you, friends, family, what you do for a living, all that fun, crazy stuff, and uh, we're going to introduce our topic and why we brought you on. Very good. Yeah, uh, my name is Miles Van Pelt. Um, I am a professor of Old Testament and Biblical Languages at Reformed Theological Seminary in Jackson, Mississippi. I'm in my 14th year here, and um, I also um, 
I'm on a pastoral team at a Grace Reformed Church, a local area church plant that's been around for about three, three and a half years. Neat, neat. And uh, family. Yes, I have one. Yeah. I, have. <laughs> I thought I heard a rumor about that. Yeah, I have. I have four children ranging in age from 11 to 19. Cool. And um, I've been married to my wife for 25 years. We met when we were 15 years old and started dating in high school. Wow. Wow. That's awesome. It so, is great. Uh, 25 years, you said? Yep. I've been and, married 25 years. And uh, Miles, you're, uh, so you got four kids, 19 to 11. Uh, where do they break down gender-wise? Uh, my oldest and youngest are boys, and then the two middle are girls. <laughs> so cool. So cool. Yeah. My, uh, oldest, my oldest is in college at University of Kentucky. Oh, neat. Neat. The rest of home. Very, very cool. Uh, we're similar. I got four, ranges uh, 17 to 7, but it's the opposite. The girls are the bookends, the boys are the middle. So uh, it's kind of neat having both, isn't it? Spread out a, across the range. Oh, so much fun. Um, well, yeah, Bryant Park, uh, who I don't think has been mentioned before, Nathan, but is a regular listener. Yep. He was a valuable member of this church, yes. and uh, he abandoned us for the. No, wait, that's the wrong <laughs> way to put it. He felt called, and we bless that. We love Bryant and Joyce. Yes. Um, and they went down to Jackson, Mississippi, yep. uh, where uh, Miles has been teaching Old Testament. And you just uh, told us right before we went on air today, Miles, that I had missed that you actually came and um, really took over the post that was once held by Dale Ralph Davis. That's exactly right. So wild, who we were thrilled to have on a couple of months ago. He's one of those quote-unquote retired guys, Miles. It doesn't really seem like he's retired. Yeah, yeah there's no such thing. There's yeah, no- I was going to say, I mean, I'm thinking, you're not retired um, when he tells us uh, what he does. So, um, well, uh, there's so much to talk about, Miles, and we want to be uh, very, very uh, honoring of your time. Uh, do you want me to take us in, Nathan, or do you want to? Go ahead and start us off, Greg. Uh, uh, Old Testament is obviously your specialty. And just, just to, you know, I know you guys are usually hesitant to share this, but where did you do your schooling, your degrees? Uh, I think that'd just be helpful for our audience. Sure. Um, I did my undergraduate at Azusa Pacific University mm-hmm. in California. Uh, my degree there was a, a bachelor's degree in biblical literature. Mm-hmm. Uh, then I went to Gordon-Conwell Theological Seminary in the Boston area, and I did an M.A., in Old Testament, and then I did some MDiv and THM studies there as well. Um, and then after a, a little bit of teaching and um, church work, um, I did my PhD at Southern Baptist Theological Seminary under Peter Gentry, who is a Septuagint scholar. Wow. Wow. Um, Nathan, do you feel sufficiently dumb? Good. Uh, <laughs> Nathan's like, no more than usual. <laughs> we, I was going to say, I mean, this is par for the course. <laughs> we feel the same each week about ourselves whenever we have these guests on. I'll tell you, Miles, we've been uh, – sometimes we say our esteem is truly in Jesus because we've had you, uh, Dale Ralph Davis, John Frame, and you think, yeah, there's some really smart people in the world. And, and our they, education came from Gilligan's Island. <laughs> Hey, that's yeah, I love a, Gilligan's Island. I grew up on TV. Oh, there you go, Miles. That's ongoing for us, man. Uh, Television, you know. one of my favorite parents. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yes, think, yeah, that was one of my primary ones as well. Yeah. Um, well, Old Testament, Miles, one of the things that we would love to talk to you about is you have uh, shared some thoughts in your writing and your teaching uh, over the years um, about the importance of the um, – the Hebrew order of the Old Testament books, you know, what we mm-hmm. think of as, as the Hebrew order of the canon, um, which I would imagine many people hear that 
their eyes might immediately glaze over like, oh, who cares? What ours, uh, the English order, of course, ends with Malachi. Um, and the, uh, the Hebrew order ends, oh boy, I hope I'm right on this, with Second Chronicles. That's right, Chronicles. So uh, initially, I'm sure many people think, okay, no, no big deal. You know, uh, people read the, the Bible in uh, order of books, sometimes by preference, based on what their churches are doing. Uh, there's even topically arranged Bibles, chronologically arranged Bibles. Could you uh, just share some thoughts with us on, because um, if I have this right, you, you attach a great deal of importance uh, to the Hebrew order of the books. Correct. Um, yeah. So um, it's, it's part of a larger scheme um, in terms of how I engage biblical theology. I kind of have three ways in which I engage the biblical text. It's, um, if you had frame right, you talked about triperspectivalism. Maybe. Oh, yes. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Nathan and I tried to uh, practice pronouncing that all morning before we had him on. <laughs> but yes, yes. Triperspectivalism. I, I loved it. And I, I have a, I have, I have three perspectives or entry points into the into the whole Bible, but especially uh, the Old Testament. And it, it comes from the end of the Book of Acts, where Paul is uh, lecturing day and night, and even for two years. And Luke summarizes his content uh, when he says, you know, that Paul was um, uh, trying to convince them about Jesus um, and the kingdom of God from the law of Moses and the prophets. And I use those three things: Jesus, the kingdom of God, and the law of Moses and the prophets. As ways in which I engage the text, I, I, I take um, I understand Jesus as the theological center of the whole Bible, both mm-hmm. Old and New Testaments, that everything is about him. Yes. And I understand the kingdom of God as the theological framework for the whole Bible. That is, every theme in the Old Testament and in the New Testament is a kingdom of God theme. So that's the one theme that uh, kind of comprehends all other themes. And then... Paul makes reference or Luke makes reference um, to the law of Moses and the prophets. And Jesus uh, at the end of uh, Luke in Luke 24 makes a similar reference to the law of Moses, the prophets and the Psalms. Mm -hmm. And uh, I engage the text in a way that takes seriously those three, uh, that threefold designation. And I call that the covenantal or canonical structure. Mm -hmm. So I have a theological center a thematic framework, and a covenantal or canonical structure. Um, The oldest arrangement of the Old Testament has three divisions, law, prophets, and writings. Mm -hmm. And they span from um, Genesis to Chronicles. And we actually have um, internal testimony or witness to that from Jesus himself, first in Luke 24, where Jesus mentions the law of Moses, the prophets, and the Psalms, as references to the three different divisions of his Bible. But also Jesus speaks in Matthew and Luke um, about uh, to, his, to his opponents about um, the blood of these prophets um, and martyrs, blood of these martyrs being required of a particular generation, uh, the blood of the martyrs from Abel to Zechariah. Yes. Yeah, and we often think, well, that, those are all the you know prophets A to Z, or, or maybe chronologically, but actually A to Z doesn't work in Hebrew because – that's not the letters in Hebrew that they begin with. Right. And, 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 and Zechariah is not the last one chronologically. And what we have there is a reference to the martyrs in the canon, actually the first martyr, um, the first martyr Abel in Genesis and the last martyr Zechariah in Chronicles. So we actually have from Jesus a pretty good indication of the fact that his Bible 
had three divisions in the Old Testament, not four, mm-hmm. and ran from Genesis to Chronicles, not Genesis to Malachi. Mm-hmm. And then, um, and so you can th- you can take that a couple of different ways. Some people take um, the arrangement of the books as simply just instructive, and you know, if if you think with regard to interpretation that context is king. You're looking how the books have been arranged to make sense of them, and I can give you an example of that in a minute. Sure. Um, other people think that that arrangement might be authoritative. Um, that's a little stronger than instructive. And then even other people might think, well, that final arrangement is maybe inspired, hmm. just like the book of Psalms has been put together in a particular arrangement that is certainly inspired. Yes. And and so you kind of have a, a, a continuum of, a, of kind of whether it's instructive, authoritative, or uh, inspired – I'm, I'm definitely think it's instructive and authoritative. I'm not exactly convinced about inspired yet, but I'm still working on it. Okay. Um, but then it makes a difference um, where a book lives. Where a book lives makes a difference. For example, the Book of Ruth. I'll give you a good example there. There's the Book of Ruth has three different positions in the canon historically. All right. The most common one is after the English in the English Bible is after the Book of Judges. Sure. And it occurs there because it says at the very beginning. These things happened in the days of the book of Judges, and so it's placed chronologically uh, according to its genre history mm-hmm. uh, right after Judges, and that's fine. Um, also, in some, in some manuscript traditions, it appears at the beginning uh, of the writings or the third division right before the book of Psalms, hmm. and that's because at the very end of the book of Ruth, there is that uh, genealogy that leads up to David. Sure. And since David was the primary kind of instigator of the book of Psalms, you can think of all the Davidic Psalms. It's in some sense his uh, his resume or his genealogy that starts that third section. But in the in the in the in the Hebrew Bible that I that we have now, and in many manuscripts, the the book of Ruth appears after Proverbs thirty one. Hmm. Uh, or after the book of Proverbs. And it's interesting to note uh, that Proverbs 31, of course, is about the, the wife of noble character, as some translations read, or the wife of virtue. Mm-hmm. And the only woman in the entire Hebrew Bible or in the entire Old Testament to be called that or to receive that label is Ruth. Yes. And so what you see is that the arrangement tells you that you're to read Ruth as the illustration of the wife of noble character from Proverbs 31. So you're not lost with trying to figure out what's going on. Yeah. It's not a story about God's providence. It's not a story about a redeemer. It's not a story about, um, you know, uh, the Gentiles coming into to Israel, although all that's there. Yeah. It's primarily an illustration of what it looks like to be that wife of noble character from Proverbs 31. Hmm. Interesting. Interesting. So position matters. Position matters. So if, if if I could ask Miles, if you're uh, preaching that, um, you're, you're preaching Ruth, how would you practically for your congregation call attention to that? In, in, in other words, I guess what I'm asking is, do you say, and I don't have a problem uh, if you do, I'm just curious, uh, that, hey, your English Bibles – <laughs> don't serve us well. You know what I mean? It's, it's always tricky because I always walk a, uh, a fine line if I'm preaching something, which nine times out of ten, uh, I feel the ESV uh, uh, version is, is going to more accurately capture something than maybe the NIV. Sure. I, I don't want to destroy confidence in the average, you know, maybe young, you know, young Christian in our church or maybe even not so young Christian in our church. It's reading the NIV. So yeah. I, I don't want to destroy confidence in their English Bible, so to speak. Yet, 
I want to say something. I'm just curious how you wrestle with that. Well, you can do a couple of things. Um, one, you know, you can just mention, you know, in your sermon series that regardless of regardless of where the book exists, English or Hebrew Bible order, you could say Ruth is the only woman called this person mm. called with this label. And so, you know, you, you know, even if you have to do some mental gymnastics to kind of figure it out chronologically what's going on. I think your congregation could pretty quickly uh, make the connection. If you over and over again, week after week, you know, remind them as you're preaching through the book of Ruth, that Ruth is an illustration of the woman of, of woman of virtue. Yes. Uh, the other thing too, is you could say, you could even say, you know, in the Hebrew Bible, for instance, you know, even in the, what you could call the Tanakh, the, the current Jewish Bible that's still around, right? Right. Uh, the book of Ruth still lives after the book of Proverbs. Uh, and so you could stay in that, you know, in that tradition, it makes it, you know, we can, we can see why it lives there. Interesting. And it makes sense that way. You don't have to, you know, even though I do think the English arrangement is wrong and I do think it's not helpful for the average reader, um, in terms of what's going on, I, uh, I, uh, you know, you can, you can, you can be sensitive in terms of how you say it. Yes. Yes. Yeah. I'm not calling for a canon revolution yet. Right. <laughs> oh, you, you took away one of my next questions. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Um, uh, interesting. I, I would ask, um, could could you uh, flesh out a little bit more, Miles, on, um, I believe the terms you, you used were, uh, you're, you're pretty confident that it is instructive and I think uh, authoritative. Mm-hmm. Um, and you said inspired, not sure you're there yet. I, is there a school of thought among certain evangelical scholars, Old Testament scholars in particular, that would argue uh, that it is inspired? I don't think so yet. Mm-hmm. Um I think that's a tricky thing. Um, and I think the reason that would be tricky is because in terms of the manuscripts that we've received, there is a, there is, there's a variety of, uh, a variety of forms in which we receive the text. And so it's hard to know, you know, you know, it's hard to know if you could ever, if you could ever put the, um, the label inspired on, I can tell you a couple of things that may be helpful. One, it seems to be, the structure and the arrangement that Jesus um, authorized in his life. Mm-hmm. Two, what's interesting is that um, the Hebrew Bible arrangement is what um, is what seems to form and shape the canon of the New Testament as well, hmm. not the English Bible arrangement. In fact, the 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 New Testament is a mirror image in terms of the book's arrangements. In terms of in terms of uh, it's, a, it's the New Testament is a mirror image of the Old Testament in the Hebrew Bible order. It's not a mirror image of the English Bible order. Interesting. And so the fact that you have your New Testament books matching in the categories of law, prophets, and writings, uh, it, it, it suggests to me a divine design or an intelligent de- design or something for sure authoritative. Um, Interesting. My, those those categories, law, prophets, and writings for me are covenant, covenant history, and covenant life. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, in the Old Testament law books, you know Exodus through Deuteronomy, those books are are are, are framed by the birth and the death of the covenant mediator Moses. Mm-hmm. Um, you have four books in the New Testament, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, that are also framed uh, by the life and the death of the covenant mediator Jesus. Mm-hmm. So there's correspondence. Then um, the history books in the Old Testament, Joshua, Judges, Samuel, Kings, 
And then the latter prophets, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, and the 12, interpret that history. And that's exactly what we find in the book of Acts. We have the historical presentation of the early church interpreted by apostolic sermons that look very much like um, uh, the prophets. So with, with Peter and Stephen and Paul, you have their big sermons in there and speeches in there that interpret that history. And then the writings and the epistles are how do you think and live in light of the covenant. And so the fact that you have those mirror images of each other in arrangement suggests to me something that's at least authoritative with Genesis and Revelation as the prologue and the epilogue that match each other as well. So I've tried to I've tried to put that out in um, uh, the new biblical theological introduction to the Old Testament that Crossway has done. I edited that volume and the first um, chapter, the introduction there is a sketch of the theological nature of the Hebrew canon. Interesting. Interesting. Boy, this is, I mean, deep end of the pool stuff, isn't it, Nathan? Before, yeah. Uh, and just so our audience knows, uh, we're recording this on a Monday morning. It will release on a Tuesday evening eventually. So, uh, man, this is good. I'm glad I got strong coffee here, Nathan, yeah. because my <laughs> my wheels are turning. Um Miles, if, if I could ask you, one of the things that comes up, uh, when I was in seminary, I had a uh, friend uh, who, when he met Christ, uh, he was uh, at that time on the cusp of going into Jesuit studies. You know, he had a really uh, incredible conversion. He was, he always says he had been converted to the church, you know, in terms of its external forms uh, for a long, long time. And then he actually met the founder of the church was how he always put it. Uh, and, uh, it just changed him completely. And one of the things he was always asking our profs about, uh, and he got great answers. So I'm, I'm just going to just ask you to kind of throw in, uh, to the mix was his, uh, Catholic friends, uh, mm-hmm. would often say, Oh yeah, yeah. I, I know you Protestant guys, you know, sola scriptura, sola scriptura. And he uh, he said the greatest apologetic challenge for him in that forum was, um, well, um, you know, they, they, they would say to him, you know, Bruce, uh, that, that's all well and good, but um, wasn't the, um, the canon of the Old and New Testament decided by collective tradition? Uh, rabbis, uh, apostles, those within the sphere of those apostles, you know, um, who in essence established the scripture and uh, you know, I always thought, man, that's a, that's a good challenge. One we should be mindful of, but he said he encountered this because of his training all the time that, well, Mm -hmm. we say scripture alone uh, trumps tradition, but they would say tradition established the scripture. Uh, I'm sure you could take a lot of paths on that one. I'm kind of (laughs) just throwing it all out of the table for you, boss and say, just arrange that as you would like. Yeah. Um, Okay, how do I want to approach this? Yeah, it's a great question, and it's one commonly asked. Uh, and I am a sola scriptura guy, and I I do not believe that tradition establishes scripture. Mm-hmm. Um, I believe that the Lord has established his covenant word in the context of covenant mediators and covenant renewals. Mm-hmm. Um, and so... The canonical status of any book of the Bible is judged in terms of its origin, its purpose, and authority by its covenantal status. Uh, the best book for that, uh, one that maybe not as um, popular or well-known, 
is by a man named Meredith Klein, who mm-hmm. wrote a book called The Structure of Biblical Authority. Mm-hmm. Every Christian should get this book and read it annually. Mm. Um, it actually uh, represents for me a kind of the birthplace of where I begin to think covenantally about the Bible, not just in terms of its content, but in terms of its formation. Mm-hmm. Uh, because Klein will argue that um, the, the Bible is covenantal in its origin, the Bible is covenantal in its function. Uh, the Bible is covenantal in its purpose. Mm-hmm. Uh, so there's nothing about the Bible in terms of its content or structure that's not covenantally driven. And so God's people receive the canon. They do not establish it. Mm-hmm. Uh, now, that's the big difference. That's yes. the big difference. God deposits his covenantal word among his people, and they receive it. They do not establish it. Mm-hmm. So that's my argument there. And again, it's an argument based on uh, the nature of the origin of Scripture and the authority of God's Word in that context. Yes, and uh just want to say, I, I looked it up here quickly. Um, and man, I'm just going to put out, Nathan, all my cards. It's not a book I've read. Um, <laughs> I was going to, you know, I, I'm so tempted. I don't know, Miles, if you remember this. There was a period, I want to say late 80s, early 90s, Everybody was quoting a book by Neil Postman called Amusing Ourselves to Death. Yes. And I was at a pastor's conference one time. I can't remember who said it, where they said, and you know the great book, Amusing Ourselves to Death, that every one of you pastors has heard mentioned at a conference and you act like you've read it. Right. <laughs> I said, I've done that. I would refer to, I would refer to Postman's book in so many places until that conference. And I thought... Lord, I'm busted, you know, because I I felt like, well, I got the gist of it, right? It's it's sort of like the dumbing down of the American mind, and I I got the gist, and I can quote this guy Neil Postman. So I was how pathetic. I'm almost going to do that talking our audience. Miles Van Pelt, Old Testament scholar, teaches at Reformed Theological Seminary, mentions the structure of biblical authority by Meredith Klein. And I immediately almost said, yes, uh, wait a minute, it's not what I meant. Uh, so, but I'm looking here, I'm looking here, Miles, it was published in 1972. Uh, right. So it, that's actually fairly recent, you know, when right. you think, that's pretty amazing to me. Yeah. Um, how and, and do you feel, uh, are there other books as well that, I mean, obviously this is what you would call your standalone in terms of a man who has addressed it carefully, wisely, thoroughly, um, uh, just curious, other books that go into this subject, because I have found, particularly when talking to folks uh, in Roman Catholicism, this this issue comes up a lot. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, well, I think there are a couple of good ones. I have a, a New Testament colleague at RTS Charlotte, uh, Mike Kruger, who has written a book, The Canon Revisited. Mm. And I think that you know would be an excellent place for people to go read. He's also got one on called The Question of Canon. Uh, Kruger does. Okay. Uh, in terms of Old Testament, uh, there's some great stuff coming out, but it's been uh, it's been slower. Um, there's actually a very um, unknown book called The Canonical Hebrew Bible by Rolf Rentdorf. Okay. I think it was Deo Publishing. It's a it's a massive volume, but it uh, the it's worth reading the introduction um, to that uh, because he deals with the nature of the shape of the canon. Also, there's another book called The Shape of the Writings, the third section of the Hebrew Bible, that's just recently come out uh, by Eisenbrons, and that's got a series of articles about 
the significance of the arrangement of the books in the writing is the interior arrangement of those books. Okay. Um, I'd also recommend, highly recommend uh, Steve Dempster's book, Dominion and Dynasty, Ooh, uh, okay. a, a theology of the Hebrew Bible. He, that first chapter in there is worth uh, worth the price of the book in terms of its discussion of the canon and the arrangement of the canon. He's kind of a um, an authority on the threefold division of the Hebrew Bible. Um, and so that that's excellent, too. Those are good reading sources. Then um, the kind of the classic standard would be the Old Testament canon of the New Testament church by Beckwith. Beckwith. Okay, yes, yes. Well, and the, um, Miles, the uh, Dominion and Dynasty book, I'm, I'm looking at Nathan. Another guest we had on mentioned that book, um, and I, I can't remember who the guest was. Um, and could, could you talk about that? That's that's a book, again, I've not read. I'm really I'm really scoring great points with the audience today on credibility. Uh, but I've heard that mentioned now by three or four different people, which I always take, okay, that's a book I need to pick up. Yeah, um, what, really is. what is his uh, basic theme there? What he's trying to do is he's trying to um, he's trying to get you to he's trying to show you the instructive nature of the Hebrew Bible um, in terms of its threefold division, and he recognizes that there's a particular flow and a flow of thought in the arrangement of the Hebrew canon where um, dominion and dynasty are two controlling themes, and you have um, large portions of narrative and then interpretations of that narrative. Okay, okay. And so, uh, but before he gets into his, uh, before he gets into the full-blown kind of description of the themes of dominion and dynasty as they carry out across the canon, he argues in that first chapter why why the Hebrew Bible order and not the English Bible order. Oh, okay. And so that's instructive at the beginning. Interesting. Yeah. Uh, and and uh, I know you've got a question, Nathan. Well, you yeah. ask yours first because I want to ask him something about um, uh, Crossway. But yeah, so just kind of looking at um, staying on the, the theme of – um, you know, engaging our Catholic friends in this. Um, do you think that there's any value in the Apocrypha to to people in general who want to study the Bible? Of course. Of course there is, a, you know, any classic scholar who studies ancient literature and texts would want to study all of the texts from that period uh, that they can get their hands on. And so – those uh, those intertestamental uh, documents known as the Apocrypha uh, are great for telling us all kinds of things uh, that are helpful in understanding that they're, they're, they're certainly not inspired, mm-hmm. um, but they are helpful as a part of the historical context in which uh, the New Testament emerged and out of which the Old Testament came. Yeah. Uh, so I have no problem with, with reading them. I mean, the books themselves, you know, in Ecclesiasticus and in um, Maccabees, they claim themselves not to be inspired. Interesting. And, and so, you know, fine. So, but they're helpful. Yes. Just like, just like I would read any any Hebrew inscription I could get my hands on. Sure. Uh, you know, because I want to know more and more about the history and the context and the culture out of which the biblical documents emerged. Interesting. So they are they are great and helpful, but they're not inspired. Um, let me ask you then, uh, Miles. This might be a, a New Testament question as well. Uh, I'm sure from time to time you've been asked. I have as well. Um, <clears throat> somewhere on a dig somewhere, 
uh, in the world today. Um, a book written by the Apostle Paul is found. You know, the, the common argument goes uh, in First or Second Corinthians when he mentions a previous letter uh, that most scholars don't think matches one of his canonical books. Um, and, oh, wow, that letter is found. Um, what has to happen? Does the canon have to be uh, – it does – does it have to be revisited? Does uh, <clears throat> Zondervan and Crossway and all these publishers have to, you know, uh, get this book, um, uh, include it uh, in the scripture? What? How would you view a book like that were it found today? Well, you know, I think um, of all of the authors in the New Testament and in the Old Testament that we know of, I'm sure their literary, you know, at least some of them, their literary careers included more than what we have in scripture. Sure. So, you know, Paul, you know, could have written, you know, 25 epistles. Right. But in God's providence, only a certain amount of them were inspired and judged, uh, you know, covenantally significant for the church in, their, in the canon by his, uh, you know, special providence and care. And so even if we found, I would say, even if we found another Pauline letter, it would not be a New Testament letter. It would not be uh, something to be inspired something that we had lost. Yes, yes. So you would almost equate it to what we see in the Apocrypha, something that is valuable to understanding what we see in Scripture, but not Scripture itself. That's right. Maybe somewhere he wrote something about his thorn in the flesh. Right. Or the illness um, from Galatians 4 that he mentions or whatever, you know, like uh, who, who, you know, there's so many different things that we don't know. uh, But that doesn't mean, you know, just if we found it, it would just be like any other thing that he's written. I'm sure he wrote many, many things that we don't have. Yes, yes. Uh, oh, go ahead, Nathan. So, uh, going back to the going back to the Old Testament, unless unless you had some no, more follow ups with this, um, I, I was wondering, Miles, if first you could uh, just go through the order that you think the Old Testament should be uh, should be read in, just for our um, listeners, in case they would like to look at that and study that a little bit more. And then could you, after you do that, also just kind of um, explain the importance that you put that um, in terms of like essential or non-essential or, you know, kind of fairly essential to, to how we view and understand uh, the scripture and the, and the gospel, particularly the gospel, um, because we have all these things that, you know, we look at in terms of study and understanding the Bible. And we would say, you know, yeah, it's, it's really important to understand who Christ is. Um, it's really important to understand who the Trinity is. Is it as important as some of those things to understand how we should read and look at scripture in terms of its order. So if you could first start with the order and then, and then maybe talk about the importance of it in, in that context. All yeah. right. And uh, Miles, if I could say, I'm glad Nathan asked that. Cause I, I meant to say half of our listeners, uh, Nathan have told us, right. They, they, they listen on their drives. Yes. And I bet some people are like, man, I, I don't know the Hebrew order. Uh, yeah. they, they've referenced it. Good question. So if you, yeah, that, if you could break that down, Miles. No problem. Here we go. There are three divisions in the Old Testament Hebrew Bible order. They are the law, the prophets, and the writings. The first section, the law, contains the five books of Moses, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. All right? That section is subdivided in half uh, or into two sections, but not in half in terms of length. Genesis is part one, 
and Exodus through Deuteronomy is part two. Mm -hmm. If you'd like me to explain that division, I'll come back to it. Mm -hmm. The second section is the prophets. The prophets are divided into two sections, the former prophets and the latter prophets. Mm -hmm. The former prophets are Joshua, Judges, Samuel, and Kings. And those books cover Israel's tenure in the land. In Joshua, they enter the land. And then in Judges, Samuel, and Kings, they live in the land. And then at the end of Kings, they get kicked out of the land. Mm -hmm. The latter prophets are what we would call the writing prophets, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, and thankfully the Twelve. Mm -hmm. In the Hebrew Bible arrangement, although you have all the different prophets listed there, they are considered one book. So Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, and the Twelve. And those guys um, are uh, kind of the Lord's prosecuting attorneys. Hmm. They are using the law uh, uh, as the standard of what they're using to judge. And they're using the former prophets as their evidence. And they're prosecuting the lawsuit of God against Israel's unfaithfulness. Mm -hmm. So Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, and the Twelve. Then you have the writings. That's the third section. I list them as having 12 books. They're divided in two, Life in the Land and Life in Exile. Mm -hmm. The first six books in the writings are Psalms, then Job, then Proverbs, Ruth, Song of Songs, and then Ecclesiastes. The second section with six books, Life in Exile, begins with Lamentations. Then you have Esther, Daniel, Ezra, Nehemiah. And Chronicles. Mm. Notice that Ezra, Nehemiah, and Chronicles are intentionally out of order. Mm -hmm. So in Ezra, you begin with Cyrus's decree in 538, uh, 36, 38 BC that the Israelites can go home to, um, and return from exile. And then you have all the recording of them going home and trying to rebuild the temple and the walls of Jerusalem. And then in the Chronicles, you have the same decree. Uh, you can go home, uh, which is a way that the Hebrew Bible says the return to exile that you've just experienced, the return from exile that you've just experienced, isn't the one that we've really been talking about. Mm, wow. So the very arrangement is eschatological. Wow. Wow. So, uh, I mean, that's, I'm taking this in, Miles, as you as you lay that out. Uh, Nathan, can I interrupt before yeah, we get to the second part? Because I think this would ask, what, Miles, is your sense? And, and, oh, man, I want to be mindful of time. We need to do five parts of these. What is your sense of the philosophy, the the idea behind our English order. Sure. Our English Bible order is, um, it, so our Hebrew Bible order is, um, it, its divisions are based on covenant. So covenant, covenant history, covenant life. So they're covenantal designations. Our English Bible order uh, is, it's based on um, genre. Mm -hmm. So it's, it's, it's more modern and more Western. So you've got the law books first, then you've got the history books, the poetical books, and the prophetical books. Mm -hmm. And then within those four divisions, there are subdivisions. It's basically chronological and by and then by authorship. I see. So it's it's nice and Western, you know. We like our you know our round our, our round blocks in one area and our square blocks in another area, and we don't like mixing them. But if you think about the writings, for example, you've got poetry and narrative and genealogies and all kinds of stuff all just mixed up, um, and and so it's it's not driven in the same way. Interesting. Yeah. I, yeah. will, I will. It's, I will make this interesting point. Um, you know that there are only two books in um, in our Bible that begin with genealogies, and they're Chronicles and Matthew. Mm -hmm. And uh, if you follow the Hebrew Bible order, uh, you'll see that those two books are back to back. Mm -hmm. 
Mm-hmm. And in the in the chronicle genealogies, only two tribes are highlighted: uh, the tribe of Judah because they're looking for the right king, mm-hmm. the tribe of Levi because they're looking for the right priest. Yes. Uh, and so, uh, and then there's another thing that's highlighted: this whole Passover thing in Chronicles. And so, when you get to the New Testament, you see that, uh, that we find this guy who is the true uh, priest king, and also the the Passover Lamb of God. And so. They're connected intentionally for us to be read that way. And wow. so I think it's helpful to see there's a reason that there are no longer any genealogies after Matthew and Luke. Yes. Because the guy that they were all looking for has arrived. Wow. So. Wow. Um, and so really quick question. You know, that prompts another thing, Nathan, before we get back to yours. Um, the whole question in New Testament studies, and, and I don't mean to take you there. Uh, untimely way, but obviously you hear a lot about Mark and priority. Um, your thoughts on that in terms of Matthew? I mean, do you, do you and its placement in the New Testament canon? Because uh, yeah. I know there was a minority view well, that was the majority view at one point, right? That Matthew was first. Yeah, yeah. I I, um, I have absolutely no idea uh-huh. which which um, gospel was written first. And I believe most New Testament scholars have absolutely no idea mm-hmm. which New Testament um, gospel was written first. It's only, you know, uh, we can only measure and then estimate. And and we, there's so much data that we don't have in terms of uh, explicit references or witnesses to dating and, and, and time and stuff like that. That's just impossible to know, um, you know, because if you thought about it, you know, I would never have arranged the New Testament in the way in which it currently appears, you know, I would have started with John mm-hmm. um, because it, it's, it's, you know, it's, it's just, it just feels more Western in its orientation. I like that book. You know? Sure. Sure. And it matches Genesis one. So why not? Right. 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 Uh, and then I would have done Mark because it's shortest than Matthew and then Luke, because I could put Luke and Acts together. Yes. So there's obviously something behind the arrangement. Um, I don't think it's accidental or anecdotal. Uh, and so, you know, if, if you begin to mess with it, people would be outraged today. Right. Uh, and so the question is, you know, should we, you know, should we follow the arrangement that's come to us uh, through the Vulgate, which we, is the English Bible arrangement mm-hmm. that we have now? Or should we follow the more ancient tradition, the one that Jesus seemed to be familiar with? Uh, Interesting. Uh, you know, it's a good question. Um, it's a good question because, you know, where you place a book. Uh, is is a contextual feature of that book, and it and, and, um, it impacts the interpretation. Uh, you could think about the, the Book of Acts. You know, at the very end of the Book of Acts, you know, Paul is in Rome for two years teaching. So I don't think it's an accident that the very next book is Romans. Yes, right? yes. it's like a published syllabus. Right, right. People think if I could only have what he might have taught for those two years, and I think, well, here's an outline. Wow. Um, I don't think I don't think it's cool. accidental. Yeah. Wow, Miles. I uh, I know we're we're just out of time, but I, it, it's perfect to come back to Nathan's second part of the question, which I I take to mean Nathan. You're asking this issue. Obviously, Miles, you've thought about this for years, studied it thoroughly, and, and we've benefited in this short forty minute interview tremendously. And we're only getting the tip of the iceberg. Mm-hmm. How do? Because obviously, I'm sure you intermingle with Christians all the time that would disagree or say, "Well, I hear what you're saying, Miles. I'm not quite there." So, how do you rank it? Is that what you were asking, yeah. Nathan, in your own sort of theological categories. I mean, obviously 
you know, the old hymns chorus debate. Most Christians say, ah, it's a conviction preference issue, perhaps not as important as the Trinity, salvation by faith, right. etc. Where do you put this issue in sort of uh, your own theological ranking? Yeah, it's a it's a good question. I mean, um, you know, I think if you I think if you mess up the canon, uh, you're not going to hell, you know. But I think mm-hmm. if you mess up uh, the personal work of Christ, uh, you're in bigger trouble. Yeah, yeah. Or if you you know mess up on the Trinity, uh, but but you know, I I don't know if I I, I rank anything in the in terms of, I, you know, I haven't really thought about that. All I think about is this: is that, um. You know, when I was in seminary, my professors would say context is king mm-hmm. for interpretation. Mm-hmm. And the analogy of faith, right? You, know, you look to scripture, the other parts of scripture to interpret the more difficult parts. Sure. And so I'm always driving towards as much context and accuracy as possible. Mm-hmm. And um, and I think, um, you know, I think if you get off, I think if you um, I think if you miss the mark on the smallest of things. You know, the progressive study of that that small missed mark can become enormous in the years that follow, mm-hmm. um, you know, uh, and so accuracy at every point is so important. And I just find I, I find so much help in the intentional covenantal theological design of the Old and New Testament. It's it's like um, I know what kind of house I'm in. And I know how to I know how to live and conduct myself in that house. Mm. Um, and so there's safety in it. Yes. Um, and it yeah. also helps me to think about typology. Um, it helps me to think about the unity of Scripture. The more I, the more I look at the design of the canon, the more I'm overwhelmed uh, by its intricacy, and the more I, the more I can see clearly that even though the Bible was written in three different languages over 1,500 years by a number of known and unknown authors, there is fundamentally one author. Mm-hmm. And there is a divine design and scripture starts with creation and then the marriage covenant and then the introduction of Satan in Genesis one, two and three. And lo and behold, at the very end of the book of Revelation, Satan is destroyed. Mm. There is a new marriage and a new creation. Mm. And so you've got an ABC and a CBA pattern where you have this chiasm that suggests that the canon is closed and is of one divine design. Yeah. And so I, I think um, – I think it is important because it, it shapes how we think about the Bible. It also shapes how we think about all the different parts of the Bible. And so, you know, and if the Bible is the true and accurate testimony to the person and work of Jesus, then it is important. Mm. Thank you. That's so good. Wow. Well, again, we, we do want to be mindful of your time um, and know that you have a meeting you need to get yes. to. So we want to go ahead and sign off now. Uh, Greg Miles, we just rock the Casper. Mississippi style. These go to 11.